Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Ahern, and in today's episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Margaret Elizabeth Ross, who is a Nathan Cummings Professor in Neurology and Director of the Center for Neurogenetics at the Field Family Brain and Mind Research Institute at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. Her lab focuses on epilepsy and behavioral disorders relevant to schizophrenia and the autism spectrum, microcephaly, and the topic of our interview today, spina bifida, and how AI can aid in the discovery of genetic and epigenetic markers of this disease. In this episode, we discuss Dr. Ross's work with neural tube defects and how risk factors like folate deficiency, diabetes, and obesity may impact their prevalence. We also discuss the use of AI in genetic research and how this may overlap into patient care, specifically genetic counseling, which, like many specialties, is entering the post-COVID era of telemedicine. Dr. Ross sees a bright future for the risk assessment and treatment of patients with spina bifida. Dr. Ross, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So before we delve into your research, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I can tell you about my background. Um, I'm an MD-PhD. I got my medical degree and PhD from uh, Cornell Medical College, now Weill Cornell Medicine. Um, I then did my residency in neurology at Mass General and uh, then two postdoctoral fellowships, uh, one in genetics at uh, Harvard Medical School and then at uh, Rockefeller University. Um, I then uh, went to the University of Minnesota for 11 years where I started my laboratory and that was where I first uh, became drawn to um, the genetics of neurological disorders and neural tube defects. And then um, I was recruited back here Oh gosh, in 20, 2002 um, to Weill Cornell, uh, which was kind of a deja vu experience. So we have a fellow gopher on our hands. Were you? Yeah, able, indeed. Did you leave because you were called back or because the cold got to you too much? No, I, I, I learned to love the cold actually. And, uh, you know, I think there's a certain antifreeze that gets um, induced uh, for someone who lives in Minnesota. So by the time I was there, just a few months, 30 degrees uh, on the plus side seemed really balmy and warm. not really necessary to have a coat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever uh, attend any gopher sports games while you were here in Minnesota? I have to say I'm not a big sports fan, um, so I did not, but I certainly uh, was a, uh, an enthusiastic witness of all of the gopher activities and uh, the Vikings um, braids and helmets that would show up in the hospital on any given uh, day, and Minnesota Twins, of course, uh, can't be beat. I love that. Yes, our, our gophers are on a streak right now, which is why I ask. So that's, really <laughs> that's cool. great to hear. <laughs> so, so you've ended up back out in New York and mm -hmm. you're working on a lot of cool projects. And in the notes for this podcast, I'll, I'll link all of those pieces of information. But I, I want to have you tell us a little bit more about your interest in artificial intelligence and medicine specifically, and kind of maybe a little bit more about your journey just into academic medicine. Sure. Well, um, my, my 
interest began with um, interest in medicine. Uh, I did not know when I started my undergraduate training that uh, I would be interested in research. That was something that really showed up. I was, uh, as an undergraduate, a chemistry major and became really interested in molecular biology. Um, then when I, I came through my residency training and uh, you know, started working out at the U of M, I became really interested in finding uh, gene mutations that cause neurological disorders uh, and was actually kind of pulled serendipitously into neural tube defects when I started positionally cloning an unknown um, cDNA that was uh, in the, the mouse cerebellum. <clears throat> and in those days, we were doing a lot of, uh, of genetic mapping of the human and the mouse genome. There were colleagues at NIH who were generating uh, the first map of the mouse genome. And I sent them uh, the cDNA that we had. And they wrote back saying that this was something that mapped close on chromosome six to a, um, a naturally occurring mouse mutant called crooked tail. And that it, if we could actually get our hands on that mouse, we might actually have an animal model already for this particular gene. Didn't turn out that way, but I did scour the globe to find uh, this crooked tail mouse line. It was something that had spontaneously arisen in um, 1954 and had been very crudely mapped to chromosome six. I found one colony in Canada at McGill and uh, Daphne Trasler very kindly sent that mouse line to us. I thought we would do a, a quick genetic uh, map uh, cross essentially with a uh, graduate student uh, who was with us for the summer. Um, and it would you know, map a huge distance away from this locus and that would be the end of it. Um, but while we were doing the breeding for this mouse, we went through about a, a three month period when the, um, the phenotype of the mutation was something called exencephaly, which is the mouse version of anencephaly. Um, and we didn't see that phenotype for three whole months. And so I was really puzzled about this because the mutation arose like decades earlier. How could we possibly lose it in the colony? So in frustration in lab meeting one day, I said, is somebody feeding folic acid to these animals? <laughs> because there had been clinical studies, um, you know, about eight years earlier uh, from the UK that indicated that supplementation with folic acid could prevent neural tube defects. So my graduate student went back to the animal care facility and asked them whether anything had changed in, in the colony, you know, over the last few months. And they said, funny, you should ask that. We did change the, um, the feed that we're using from a uh, mouse chow to a rat chow because it was less expensive. We took a look at the formulation of that chow and they were very similar, but um, the mouse chow had four milligrams per kilogram of uh, folic acid in the, in the feed and uh, the rat chow had seven. So by that time, we, we could actually look at um, 
it's called the haplotype. Uh, you know, we could tell which embryo we were looking at had the gene in, in their genome, but we didn't know what the gene actually was. And so we could do a diet study. And uh, we proved and published that folic acid could prevent neural tube defects in this particular mouse line. Long story short, that's how I got into neural tube defects. And we eventually did clone the gene that was involved. It turned out to be a single amino acid swap in a, um, in a gene called LRP6 that is in the Wnt signaling pathway, very important ancient developmental pathway. So, you know, how this one amino acid change uh, could have such a profound effect on development uh, is really fascinating and how folic acid could play on that is something that uh, we pursued a little bit further. But in the end, uh, it just uh, seemed that if we just went one gene at a time, we weren't gonna get very far very fast. And I felt, uh, you know, there, there's a very large field out there working on wind signaling. They're doing a fabulous job. I'm not sure that I would add too much of that uh, to that over time. What I would be able to do perhaps is to look more into the human condition. And that's what started us on wanting uh, to embark on this sequencing project, uh, trying to look at the genetic risk factors for spina bifida in, in human patients. The more we learned about uh, that condition and the field is learning, uh, the more we realized that this was going to be a, a big data problem and the best way that we could uh, wrap our minds around it uh, was uh, to start thinking about um, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning to help us out. That's amazing. And so you've mentioned two neural tube defects. You've mentioned anencephaly and you mentioned spina bifida, both mm -hmm. of which we learn about as medical students. Everybody might not uh, know what those two things are. Could you give us a little bit of a background, especially about spina bifida, because that's the focus of our, our interview today is spina bifida. What are the risk factors? How common is it? What have you learned in all of this study of spina bifida? Sure. Well, neural tube defects in general uh, get their name because the, the entire nervous system starts out in early embryogenesis as a flat plate of cells called neural plate. And uh, over the first four weeks of gestation, these cells are dividing all the time. The edges mound up and they create something called the neural folds that come together in the midline and they have to fuse. Once they've done that, they create a, a tube-like structure called the neural tube uh, that in the, uh, in the um, rostral part in the head region creates the brain and in the caudal part uh, in the spinal column creates the spinal cord. Um, as you can imagine, well, what happens as the, the uh, neural folds fuse is they come together in multiple points to fuse and then they complete the closure. So you can, it really looks like a zipper effect that goes from the, the head to the toe uh, to, uh, to close the neural tube. Um, and as you can imagine, if something happens that 
this, uh, these folds don't come together, or if they don't come together well and they then pull apart, you're going to have um, exposed neural tissue uh, to the outside. If that happens in the, in the brain, in the head region, it's not going to be compatible with life and you have anencephaly. So we don't really see those uh, babies very often in clinic, uh, in, the, you know, in the NICU. Um, but in the, in the caudal regions, in the spinal level, uh, you have a, a breach where the, um, uh, the spinal cord or the nerve roots are extending outside of the spinal column. And what occurs then is that you have paralysis uh, at, you know, below the level of this defect. And you can have a number of um, comorbidities, some accompanying problems. Uh, one of the very important ones is called Chiari malformation, when the um, cerebellum gets essentially pulled down into the foramen magnum and it can cause hydrocephalus that you have to then, you know, the, the ventricles that are this spinal, uh, the CSF uh, fluid um, filled space has to uh, be relieved of pressure. So you essentially uh, put a tube in the, in the ventricle and have it drain into uh, essentially the, the um, abdominal cavity. Um, if you don't uh, relieve that, aside from hydrocephalus, you can also get um, pressure on the spinal cord and that can cause weakness as well in the, uh, in the upper extremities. So it's, it can be a, a really devastating complication. But then there are other things that can happen along the way as well as the child with spina bifida develops. Um, so it, it's really helpful to understand what the underlying causes are, not only so that you can help a family um, prevent these, these problems and have the best chance for a healthy birth outcome, but also so you can understand more about the prognosis of the child who's affected and really optimize their care as well. Um, this uh, spina bifida and neural tube defects in general uh, occur in about one in every 3,000 uh, live births in the United States. There are different uh, frequencies, prevalences across the, the globe. And uh, we think some of that is due to different environmental exposures. Um, but in the US, that one in 3,000 uh, translates to about 2,500 affected infants every year and about 140,000 across the world uh, every year. So it's a significant um, number of people who are impacted, but still not as frequent as something like autism spectrum, where you know, it can be one in 64 uh, children who are affected. Absolutely. I love, I love the clinical relevance of this. And when you started describing that process of embryogenesis, the folding of, of the fetus, that is the bane of existence for many a medical student. And so I think it's amazing that you tie in sort of these clinical relevancies. And I think that's another great thing about the papers that you have on spina bifida is they really tie in the really interesting aspects of medicine, machine learning, 
into a very clinically relevant thing like spina bifida. So I'll snowball that into my next question, which is that you've published a few articles now on this topic. Uh, the first one being genomic approaches to the assessment of human spina bifida risk, which was in 2018. The second one being a systems biology analysis of human genomes points to key pathways conferring spina bifida risk. This was very recent in 2021. What was the motivation behind these projects and what were your findings? Well, we have a rich uh, backlog background of uh, scientific work on uh, the causes of, of neural tube defects in animal models and in epidemiological studies, population-based studies over the last 30 years. And uh, what the field has learned is that um, spina bifida is not a, um, a monogenic disorder. It's not caused by a single gene defect, but it's a complex genetic disorder. And it requires the conspiracy, if you will, of multiple genes and gene environment interactions to actually manifest. And it's easy to understand how that can happen because if you take one gene that's really critical to, um, to human development and you completely inactivate that, that's probably not going to be a viable embryo. And you'll, uh, you'll lose them in utero. You'll never see them in clinic. But for, um, for infants who will be uh, you know, viable, um, these conditions are caused by small changes in gene function that, uh, that essentially build up epistatic changes that uh, then lead to the manifestation of, uh, of the structural birth defect. So it's going to be challenging to figure out in an individual how many of these uh, genes and which genes are affected? Is there a pattern that uh, you can use in an individual to be able to uh, predict their risk for uh, developing spina bifida? And from there, what the mechanism, underlying mechanism has been. Our hope is that when we, when we have this kind of information, we may one day be able to look at the genomes of, uh, of a couple uh, who want to uh, you know, start a family so that we can look at their genetic background and say, what measure is most likely to be useful for them to prevent a serious birth defect? Um, and uh, you know, at this point, the, the preventive measures that we have are based on large population studies. Um, we know that uh, even folic acid, which is, has the potential to prevent up to 70% of neural tube defects, um, is particular for, um, for certain populations. There are some populations where you don't see such a great benefit. And so it's very likely that uh, for individual couples, some will benefit more than others. And there may be other things out there that could uh, do a better job to promote healthy birth outcomes. So as we learn more about mechanisms, uh, we hope to be able to optimize that. There are some supplements, for example, one is inositol that has um, gained a lot of attention, uh, may be beneficial uh, to um, families where uh, it seems that they have 
folate resistant neural tube defects. Um, but we still don't know who is most likely to benefit from these, uh, from these compounds. So you also mentioned in uh, your study that you're, you were using whole genome sequencing um, mm -hmm. to look at these genomes, and which is a great idea because like you mentioned, it's very polygenetic. You don't really know, you know, there's some genetic component, not necessarily what it is. One of the things that we're taught in learning about whole genome sequencing is the downside is the amount of data that it produces is like an insane amount. But yes. I'm guessing that might have been why you guys lean towards machine learning and artificial intelligence to kind of look at this and facilitate that study. So my question for you is, how did you facilitate this machine learning incorporation into your study? Did you have a specialist you were working with? Were you guys self-taught? And what did you guys learn from this experience? Right, so we have a multidisciplinary team working on this project of clinicians, geneticists, um, computer scientists, uh, and uh, basic scientists uh, interested in this problem. Um, one of the uh, challenges of looking at a condition like spina bifida is that it's not as prevalent as some of the complex genetic disorders like diabetes, or I already mentioned autism or schizophrenia, where you can collect uh, you know, tens of thousands of individuals to be able to look at genome-wide association studies. That's going to be very difficult to do for spina bifida because uh, you know the repositories that are available and that we've been contributing to have individuals on the order of a hundred or uh, you know several hundred. Reaching the thousands that you would need for a GWAS would be very difficult. So we've been um, challenged with trying to find ways to get information uh, in as unbiased a way as possible from smaller numbers of, uh, of individuals. And this is something where we've, uh, we've learned that machine learning can be extremely helpful. Um, up until this point, uh, most of the work on, um, in human studies of spina bifida have involved um, something called a candidate gene search. So we take the information that we get from the, uh, the animal models of uh, spina bifida, which have been incredibly informative and helpful uh, over the years to understand what kinds of things may be involved in an individual's condition. And then taking those genes and looking at those specific genes in the, in the genome of uh, affected individuals and trying to make uh, you know, sense of whether they have problems in that particular gene. Um, the difficulty with that is that you tend to get what you look for. And uh, you know, as I'm sure you've been learning from your uh, statistics training that cherry picking is something you shouldn't be doing <laughs> when you're trying to find the, um, the underlying cause for things. So machine learning is something that uh, has been very successful in our hands of working with a, uh, a population 
of uh, of individuals on the order of about you know in the, in this case almost 150 individuals and unrelated controls of 150 um, and we use that uh, to look at rare variants uh, that are likely to be deleterious um, either because they create a premature stop or uh, you know, a, a stop loss or a stop gain, or uh, they have uh, created a frame shift, um, or they are predicted, they're a missense variation, they make a, one of those amino acid swaps uh, that's predicted by computation to be deleterious. So you take those genes, uh, those variants, and um, then uh, take a look at how many times you see a particular um, deleterious variant in a particular gene. It's called gene collapsing or gene enrichment. So the logic there is that for uh, a gene that's important in um, a neural tube uh, defect, that you would see more often than you would see in controls, you would see these uh, rare deleterious variants. And so that's, that's a good start. You would still need a fairly large population to be able to um, get a, uh, an adequate statistical power at the single gene level for, for that kind of strategy. So we took it a step further and said, okay, um, if we take all of these genes that have more variants in them, can we through machine learning, see which of those genes is going to be likely uh, to distinguish spina bifida from controls. And we used a uh, uh, now pretty classical machine learning uh, algorithm called random forest to do that. And that uh, was very helpful. We could not get to a single gene um, uh, level of statistical significance because you know you have this problem of having to correct for um, multiple um, hypothesis testing and for most of the studies that are out there once you do this correction you lose statistical significance but uh, if we took those genes and looked at the pathways that they were involved we could get highly significant pathways that would tell us okay What's the mechanism that seems to be underlying, you know, the spina bifida that we see in, in this population? And the thing that, uh, that came up uh, in the list of significant pathways, we saw some things that we expected, which was, you know, very good uh, and encouraging that, you know, this is on the right path. But one of the very interesting insights was that at the top of the significance list were um, pathways and genes that are involved in um, gluconeogenesis and uh, you know, lipid metabolism. Uh, so very related to, um, to diabetes and obesity. And we know from epidemiological studies that diabetes and obesity are one of the uh, risk factors for neural tube defects. 
So the other thing that was uh, rather interesting about that is the um, in our post folate fortification world, and uh, you know here in the United States, our food supply has been uh, fortified with folic acid to try to make sure that everyone has a um, uh, an enrichment that will reduce the frequency of structural birth defects uh, like neural tube defects. So in our, our post-folate fortification, um, what we've been seeing epidemiologically is that the risk factors of obesity and uh, diabetes are um, becoming even more important than, uh, than folate status uh, in, among the risk factors. So to, to see this confirmed on a molecular level uh, just got us very excited. And then there are other pathways then that we now need to <clears throat> pay more attention to, <clears throat> excuse me, um, like um, inflammation and innate immunity and um, cytoskeletal uh, modeling. Uh, and uh, so that gets into certain aspects of, uh, of you know, second messenger signaling as well. So some really interesting clues coming just from this very small group of uh, patients. So we um, intend to continue our, uh, our collecting uh, samples and sequencing so that we can expand the studies and uh, look more closely drilling down into specific gene-gene interactions as we go forward. But we're very much encouraged that you know, this machine learning strategy is going to be very useful uh, for many studies to come. That's awesome. And I am curious. So it sounds like you guys have made great headway in kind of cracking the code to spina bifida risk assessment. How long, how far out do you think we are from a couple being able to walk into the office of a geneticist and get realistic feedback about what their risk is for spina bifida for their child and what they can do to mitigate that risk? Well, we're very hopeful that within the next five to 10 years, we'll have enough information to be able to help, to help with that. Um, we're also becoming quite uh, interested in understanding more about the developmental uh, risks for the, the child with spina bifida presented to us. Because now with the uh, benefits of uh, improved medical care um, and new methods for VP shunting and being able to optimize uh, a number of those additional medical problems that um, children with spina bifida face as they grow, um, about 75% of infants who are born with spina bifida will live well into adulthood. And so, you know, this is going to have a, a major impact on their quality of life. We think that the more we learn about these mechanisms, um, we will uh, be able to work on uh, new treatment modalities that will help them with some of the physical challenges that they'll have and also tell us more about their individual developmental potential so that we can do a better job of um, tailoring uh, you know, treatments and, uh, and therapies going forward to optimize their developmental potential.
Absolutely. And this is a follow-up question on that. And I think it's kind of interesting, you know, we talk about the availability of genetic counseling, but that isn't a really a reality for everyone. So how often do you think, you know, that people will be able to get this full access to genetic counseling based off of, you know, their location or their finances? And what responsibility do you think physicians have to use this information, this amazing information that your team has found equitably, and is that realistically possible? Excellent question, very big question. Um, well, first, I think that the, uh, the needs for um, diversity in biomedical research are uh, incredibly important. <clears throat> we, uh, we even you know, show in the, the paper that you're uh, talking about, uh, that just came out, um, that the, uh, the genetic background of the uh, population that you're looking at uh, will be very important for being able to in interpret and identify uh, disease associations. And so when we're missing um, genomes from, uh, from diverse populations, everybody is losing. So it's really important that we try very aggressively to include um, underrepresented uh, populations and demographics in the research that we do. And I'm very uh, you know, gratified that that's something that we have been able to do. We've been um, major participants in the All of Us uh, you know, uh, research project funded by NIH to specifically bring um, underserved populations into uh, into 21st century biomedical research. But then, as you say, once we have some of these uh, advances, it's really important to make sure that it finds its way back to the populations <clears throat> who have participated. And that's something that we as physicians can really be uh, very helpful with by you know, constant advocacy, uh, working with insurers and legislators and, uh, you know, making sure that this information is, is accessible. Um, genetic counseling is critically important. And this is something that um, biomedical institutions are becoming increasingly aware of. Uh, I think it's really important for physicians in training to realize what a, a tremendous impact um, genetics and genomics is going to have on their future practice and uh, to learn as much as, as they possibly can to become familiar with it um, and comfortable with uh, interpretations that come their way to be aware of when um, you know, families that, that uh, we see would benefit uh, from seeing a, a geneticist or a genetic counselor. And options for genetic counseling are, uh, are growing every day, uh, especially over the last two years, we've learned a lot about uh, the power of telemedicine. And so I think uh, one of the, um, the benefits, I guess, of having uh, to turn uh, so heavily toward um, the, uh, the televisit is that genetic counseling will become more accessible uh, even in remote areas. 
Absolutely. And, and both you and I are in epicenters of healthcare. You know, I'm in the Twin Cities. We have University of Minnesota Mayo Clinic right down the road. You're in New York. Again, a great area for medical care, but surrounded by a lot of uh, areas that do not receive this sort of care that you would receive in an urban area. So I think your, your point about telemedicine is very well taken. And I think the, the post-COVID era lends itself very well to that. I'll ask you one last question and I'll say, first of all, I really love that this work is so clinically relevant. And we've previously had an episode on the use of AI in the clinical laboratory. And I think a lot of those themes are sort of mimicked here. And I'm curious, this is kind of a what comes next question, but what's next for your lab and will your future projects make use of machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, there is another project that we're involved in, uh, which is a uh, multidisciplinary, multi-center uh, grant um, funded by NIH that is centered on evaluating variants of uncertain significance in uh, genes that are associated with epilepsy. So one of the... Um, challenges and uh, you know, great frustrations of a geneticist are that um, when, we've, uh, when we've undergone uh, genetic testing with an individual who has a condition that we're really convinced uh, has a, a genetic underpinning, the clinical laboratory may come back with a report uh, that doesn't really offer a diagnosis, but has a variant of uncertain significance or a VUS in a gene that uh, is very tantalizing because uh, you know, the phenotypes, the, the syndromes that are associated with that gene um, fit the patient really well. So what we're trying to do in this grant is to um, devise uh, better computational tools for um, analyzing a VUS uh, in such a gene to do a better job of predicting whether or not it's pathogenic. Uh, right now, the in silico, uh, you know, the computational uh, tools that are available like Polyfen and SIFT and CAD um, are good, but they're not great. They can often, uh, you know, predict something is going to be tolerated or benign and when you actually study it, it may actually look like it's pathogenic. Um, so with this uh, study, we are selecting uh, genes for which there are many VUSs that have been encountered and reported by the uh, clinical laboratories and investigators. And uh, we're using um, machine learning to uh, see if we can use variants, uh, variables like um, predicted protein stability, protein-protein interactions, if uh, you know, it's a, um, a gene that's uh, involved in um, you know, cell adhesion uh, or uh, in synaptic transmission, whether or not it uh, looks like the particular uh, amino acid change or variant that we're looking at is, is going to uh, be in a critical uh, domain of that protein. 
And we look at it biochemically uh, in uh, induced pluripotent stem cells and uh, human stem cells in two-dimensional cultures, in three-dimensional organoids, in animal models, and even in zebrafish. So we have this computational prediction that has used machine learning uh, to, uh, to evaluate um, these features. Uh, and we have a prediction model <clears throat> that uh, we're now taking those particular predictions, putting them into biological systems to see whether or not the prediction holds up. And if it doesn't, or if it does, we feed it back into the, into the tool to improve the prediction modeling. And uh, this is something that is um, called EpiMVP. It's uh, available, or uh, the website is, is up. The tool we hope is going to be operational uh, in mid-2022 for people to be able to use, and that it's going to uh, you know, become more and more useful and accurate uh, as we go along. And this has been uh, you know, a terrific project that involves investigators at uh, U Michigan, Northwestern, um, uh, University of Miami, UCSF, and us. And uh, it's, it's been really quite an effort. And the machine learning is, uh, is critical to the entire project. Sounds like you guys are going to be very busy over the next couple of years. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so I've given you lots of hard questions. So I'd like to end our interview with a few softball questions. These We like to ask these of our, all of our interviewees because we think they're fun. But my first question for you, and you will not be held to anything, any of the predictions you make now, but what do you think the future of AI in medicine will look like in 10 to 20 years? Well, I think AI is definitely going to have a huge impact on biomedical research so that we can find, um, you know, biomarkers of uh, disease, risk patterns, uh, can help us with um, modeling of uh, pathogenic mechanisms. Um, it's going to be really uh, important in diagnostics and medical imaging, for sure. Uh, and uh, without question uh, in drug design and, uh, and treatment. We're going to be learning more and more about things like polygenic risk scores and how to use them properly. Uh, and that's going to feed back uh, into the clinic. Uh, these risk scores have already been uh, used quite successfully in, in oncology, in, uh, you know, in cancer treatment. And I think um, probably the very next discipline that's going to benefit most from it is going to be uh, neurology and uh, neurologic diseases because uh, we've, we've got just a, a huge complexity to deal with there. I was saying to Dr. Ross right before our interview started that uh, I was searching out a specialty where I think machine learning will be very relevant. And I had said neurology and dermatology, I think are, are some good ones. So I am reassured to hear that from you. My next question is, what general life advice would you give to yourself in your 20s? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. That is um, a tough one. I said these were softballs, but I don't think so. 
I think I would probably tell myself to uh, have a better diet <laughs> when, I, when I was in my 20s. Um, oh gosh, it was terrible. I prided myself that I was living on about $15 a week. And so I had a lot of um, out of date vegetables and uh, surplus peanut butter. And <laughs> in my surgical rotation, I think I lived on McDonald hamburgers. And so it was horrible. My mom I'm sure I cut 10 years off my life. My mom calls that the frozen pizza and orange juice diet. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, but you know, you're, you're totally um, invincible when you're 20 years old. So yes. think ahead. Okay. I will think ahead. That's good advice. Right now I'm on the uh, stay warm in Minnesota in winter diet, which is just to eat as much as possible to uh, add a little bit of insulation to my body. So <laughs> good plan. Yeah, it is a good plan. My last question for you is what specific advice would you give to med students or early career physicians? Um, well, I, I think that uh, first I would compliment you on uh, career choice because it's an extremely life enriching experience, um, both intellectually and interpersonally because the, the privilege of working with patients and uh, trying to find the underlying cause of things that are uh, impacting their quality of life, I think is a, is a real um, mission. Uh, and so, you know, keep at it. Um, I would encourage you to learn as much as you can about um, genetics and gen genomics. Uh, and uh, this is something that's going to be permeating your clinical practice. I think it's something that's already um, become par for the course for pediatricians, uh, but it's going to be the case as well for um, physicians who see only adults uh, because our, our tools are becoming so sophisticated and, and so useful. We don't have to have huge numbers of uh, of affected individuals to be able to look at a pedigree uh, through multiple generations. We can get a diagnosis from one individual. Um, and it, it's important to become comfortable with, uh, you know, what the meaning is of some of the clinical testing that you're going to be ordering or that you're going to see in the medical record. Um, and I would also encourage you to, um, work on your, uh, your skills as an investigator. Uh, you know, biomedical research uh, requires so many different skill sets and, uh, you know, being a, a really good clinician, diagnostician is critically important. If you can work um, with people at the bench even if you're not the person who's uh, wielding the pipette, uh, if you are seeing the patients, you're seeing the clinical problems, uh, you're characterizing the features accurately and well, um, your impact on research is going to be just incredibly important. Uh, so being able to work in multidisciplinary teams is, is really important. And, I would encourage that you do that even if you go into private practice, there will be many opportunities and it's a really exciting future. That's some fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Ross. 
And would you like to share any final words of wisdom with our viewers? Gee, I think we've gone over quite a lot, but <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think uh, that I, I wish all of you fantastic careers that you're going to find uh, you know, what really motivates you to wake up in the morning and problems that you're interested in working in. It's, uh, it's a great privilege uh, that, uh, that you have, and I hope you make the most of it. Well, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure.